0: Open your Bibles, if you would, one more time to Luke 15, Luke chapter 15. I'll finish up this morning our seven-part series on the prodigal son, and then uh, next week we have a missions emphasis week. I'm very excited about that. You don't want to miss that. Sunday morning and Sunday night uh, we'll be celebrating together what God is doing in our church uh, around the world. It's really pretty incredible. Then the following week, the first Sunday of December, I'll begin a four-part series on Isaiah 9-6. Uh, I'm going to take those four names of God, of Jesus, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and Everlasting Father. I know that none of you need a Prince of Peace or a Wonderful Counselor during the holidays. But just in case some of you might need that, I decided I'd spend four weeks on those four names of Jesus. So that's coming up. That's going to be great. But this morning, we will finish Luke 15. Uh, While you're turning there, before I get started, can I ask, just as your pastor, for one little favor? Uh, I need you to just help me with something. So the way this normally works on Sunday morning is that I get up and preach, and uh, it's not too terribly long. My, my kids often think different, but it's not terrible, uh, 30 to 35 minutes, and then I usually at the end say, uh, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And then I take about one minute, and I kind of walk us through a time of, of invitation, and then we stand and we sing a song. And I believe those last moments are really sacred. I mean, the whole moment of Sunday morning is sacred. This is a moment set aside for us to give our full attention, not to those around us, but to the Lord, and really hear what the Lord has to say to us. But I have a conviction that when God speaks, that's the moment to respond. Whether someone comes forward or not is not the point. I just believe in that moment, it's a moment for us to say, have we heard from God, and if so, let's respond. Can I just encourage you in those last moments to not leave? Like, when I say head bowed and eyes closed, if, if you would be willing just to stay there, from the moment I say that to the moment we go is about five minutes. And uh, I know you think, well, I'm just leaving. It's no big deal. But the reality is it's distracting those around you. And then when you open the door, there's a lot of noise come in. And I, if you have an emergency, that's great. But if you could just give us five more minutes right until I say, I love you and I love being your pastor. Uh, that would be really, really – that's your cue, all right? That's when you go uh, – that would really be helpful for me. I just, I just want us to be all in and engaged in that moment. And uh, at the very least, just praying uh, for those around us that God would do something in that moment. Sound good? Amen. All right. Great. So the seventh week in our series of Luke 15. And the reason I spent seven weeks on this is because as I begin to immerse myself in the story of the prodigal son, I begin to see in this seven themes that run throughout all of the Bible. I wasn't expecting this. I had never seen it before, but I just begin to see that the reason this story resonates with us so much is because this is our story. We see ourselves at some place in the story of the prodigal son, but not only is it our story, it's God's story. This is the story of the Bible in one story. And so it's the story that's in our hearts. God has placed it in our hearts and everything in this story resonates with us for that reason. But these seven themes are quite significant. I'm not going to re-preach all the sermons, but let me just remind you, theme number one is that God loves people. And he's aggressively pursuing people. He cares about the needs of people. Theme number two is the lie of sin. The same lie that the prodigal son believed is the same lie Adam and Eve believed, which is this lie, that there is life that is better outside of a relationship with the Father. That's a lie, and it's always the same lie. The next theme was the consequence of sin. Anybody who chooses to believe that lie and walks away from the Father will experience the same consequences of sin. The next theme was that of turning back to God. Repentance. That no matter how far you've gone, isn't this good news? No matter how far you've gone away from the Father, if you will acknowledge your sin and turn from your sin and turn to the Father, He will welcome you home. The theme of turning back to God. The next theme was the theme of identity in Christ, meaning when the son comes back, he's not a slave, he's a son. He's clothed in the righteousness of God. He's got a signet ring on his finger, meaning that all the inheritance is his. He's an heir of the father. And when you come to Christ, he makes you a son, declares you righteous, clothes you in his righteousness, and everything that belongs to him now belongs to you. That's good news. Last week, we looked at that theme of self-righteousness how easy it is to be religious, but lost, which is the picture of the older brother. And the truth is the parable ends unresolved. It ends with an older brother who's a picture of the Pharisee standing outside and he's pouting because inside the house, the father is throwing a party for the prodigal son. And the older brother thinks the prodigal son doesn't deserve it. And so he's out refusing to come in. And the whole issue that's happening there is the father saying, listen, you're religious, but you're distant from the father as well. You just don't see it he says, I'm inviting you in. I want you to come and be a part, but I'm not gonna stop the party for you. Why? Because this is who God is. God is the one who celebrates the lost coming home. Now, the final theme is extremely important because it's really the final theme in which we start to find our place in the story. Now, certainly we've seen ourselves all throughout this story, but it's this final theme which turns this story from being just a fascinating story to a story that we must engage in. In which we sense an invitation from the Lord saying, Hey, listen, you need to come and be a part of what God is doing. Because the final theme is the theme of the mission of God, the mission of God. It's, it's where the story becomes practical, it's where the story becomes personal, it's where we sense the invitation of God inviting us to be a part. Now, the mission of God is not just a theme of Scripture. I would say the mission of God is the theme of Scripture. That it is the unifying theme of all of Scripture. From Genesis chapter 2, where you see a picture of the Garden of Eden and four rivers going out, which is a picture of the fact that even before sin, God's desire was from flowing from His presence for His glory to be made known to the ends of the earth. It was always His desire that His glory and knowledge of Him cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. All the way to Genesis chapter 12, where God creates for himself a people for his own possession that exists to take his glory to the ends of the earth. This has always been the heart of God. He is a God who is on mission. And you see it very clearly all throughout the story of the prodigal son, that this is the story of Scripture. I heard someone say, you don't need a flashlight to find the mission of God in Scripture, because the mission of God is the flashlight of Scripture. In other words, if you go to the scripture understanding that God has always been on the mission, it helps everything else in scripture become clear. And that's right. You should say, well, what is the mission? Well, you could say it a lot of different ways, but the bottom line is this. God's mission is to make himself known to the ends of the earth. It is as Matthew 24 says, for the gospel to be preached to every nation. It is the spread of The knowledge of his glory to every corner of the earth. You can say it a thousand different ways, but the point is this. God has always longed to make sure every single person hears the gospel and is given an opportunity to respond. That's the mission of God. He is seeking and saving the lost. But you'll notice throughout scripture that God's people often miss this. It's so strange because it's so connected to the very heart of God. It's the core of everything. The whole reason God has a people, Genesis 12, is because he is blessing them that they might be a blessing to the nations. But they tend to do what we tend to do, which is as God blesses us and as he brings us into his house and makes us part of his family, we become idolatrous. And there's all kinds of things we begin to love more than we love the Lord. And we become self-centered where we think that all of this is about us. And if we're not careful, we'll wake up one day realizing that we're religious, but we're lost because we have missed the heart of God. And that's exactly the conflict of Luke 15. It is Jesus manifesting for us the heart of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. John 1 says, no one has ever seen God at any time, but Jesus makes him known. So if you ever wanted to know what it's like to see God, well, you see it in Jesus. So Jesus is showing up just doing what God does. And it's that very thing that the religious cannot stand. Showing us that they're religious, but very far from the heart of God. Look again at what it says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is, is doing what God does. The religious absolutely can't comprehend it. Showing us that they're far from God's heart. They've missed the whole point. And so Jesus tells these three parables to confront the religious in their hard-heartedness. You know that these parables were meant to be confrontational. They're not just enjoyable or entertaining. They're meant to be confrontational. I mean, look at verse three. It says, so he told them this parable. What man of you, Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And then look at verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Here's the confrontation. What Jesus is saying is this. You're mad at me because I'm seeking the lost. But if you had a sheep that was lost, you'd go after it. If you had a coin that was lost, you'd go after it. Now, the problem is not going after something that's lost. The problem is is that you don't think I should go after lost people. You love lost sheep and you love lost family heirlooms. You just don't love lost people. And so in every one of these parables, he's confronting them with the reality that if they had something lost, they would go after it. They just do not share God's heart for lost people. There it is that the story ends with the religious, the scribes and Pharisees outside of the house while there's a party going on for the lost who'd come home and them refusing to come in because they would rather miss the kingdom completely than celebrate the lost and pursue them. And the really confrontation for us in this text is this, is that will we be religious and do the right thing and follow all the rules and kind of stand outside while the lost are being saved? Or will we be the people of Jesus who are fishers of men and are joining with him in his mission? Because the reality is this, our God is a missionary God and his people are a missionary people. Our God is a missionary God and his people are a missionary people. And the question from this text as we leave this story is this, practically speaking, how are we going to engage in the mission of God and make sure We are not the self-righteous, rule-following, pouting older brother. But we're the people of Jesus who embrace his heart and embrace his mission. Now, I really believe there is a a bit of a simple answer here. Now, I was telling Sky Pratt before I preached this morning that I, I grew up in a church maybe like you did where we talked about evangelism a lot and every sermon just made you feel terrible about yourself. Like, you just felt like a complete idiot, and as a matter of fact, you often felt like you don't even know Jesus. Like, you, it doesn't matter what you've done. If you haven't led someone to Christ like yesterday, you don't love Jesus. And so what I want to say to you is this. Most of us have deficiency in this area. Like, we do have a tendency to be self-absorbed and often idolatrous But here's what I'm praying this morning. I'm praying this morning that God would allow us to take some practical steps in the right direction and embrace his heart, that we would put some effort into this, that we would see people the way that God sees it, that we would seek them, and that we would celebrate them. Because at the most basic level, that's Luke 15. Jesus saw lost people, he sought lost people, and he celebrated lost people. So let's just take that little basic paradigm of the mission of God and practically think about what it looks like for us as we leave this text to see the lost, to seek the lost, and to celebrate the lost. First of all, we must see the lost. Write that down. We must see the lost. I think it's fascinating what's happening here in verses 1 and 2, and we've talked about this week after week, that there are three parties present. There are the religious there are Jesus and there's the tax collectors and sinners. So the tax collectors and sinners represent both those who are outsiders, meaning they, it's not like they're just the worst of the worst. They just don't fit in. They walk into church and it just seems to kind of be clear to everyone that goes to church, you don't usually come here. They're just outsiders. They don't seem to fit. And then there's the tax collectors who really were cowards. They were traitors that they joined as Jews with the Roman Empire to exploit their own people by collecting money for the Romans for their people, but taking more in order to line their pockets, their traitors, and they're absolutely despised. So you've got both just kind of outsiders who don't fit in and a group of people the Jews absolutely despise. And then there's Jesus and the religious. Now, what's interesting is this. The one group of sinners and tax collectors are here and Jesus sees them and the religious sees them, but they don't see the same thing. The religious look at the lost and just see broken, messy, complicated people that need to get their act together. They see a group of people that we should probably stay distant from because we don't want to get too close to them, lest somehow we get kind of kind of hurt by them, or or somehow their their sin rubs off on us or something. I don't know, there's some idea that like we, we gotta get far from them. They're just messy and complicated. Jesus sees them completely different. Jesus does see them as messy and complicated, but he sees them as lost people who believe the lie of the enemy. And are dying without him and will spend eternity in a literal hell. Truth is, is that Jesus sees them and feels compassion for them. The religious see them and feel condemnation. Jesus wants them near, the religious want them far. The same group of people, but they're seen completely different. And do you realize before we're ever going to share the gospel with anybody, we must see people like Jesus sees them. And this is where the real application of the sermon is just praying that God would allow us to have his heart, that God would allow us to have his eyes because the truth is we're surrounded by lost people. The question is, do we see what Jesus sees when he looks at the same people? Think about Matthew nine thirty-six, where it says, Jesus was going from village to village and to different synagogues and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of diseases. And you know how this happens, you've you've read the Gospels, and as Jesus does this, he's surrounded by thousands and thousands of people, everyone trying to get near to him. And it says that Jesus looks out upon the multitudes that have come around him. And he says he has compassion over them, meaning he has this gut-wrenching feeling, like he's sick at his stomach, because he sees them, listen, as sheep without a shepherd. Taking us exactly to Luke 15. That Jesus doesn't see a lost person just as a lost person. He sees them as a sheep without a shepherd, wandering aimlessly through life in danger from the enemy because they don't have the protection of a flock. And he longs to bring them back in. And he came for that very purpose. So Jesus sees the same people that we do. He just feels something different than we feel. I had to take a quick little trip to Dallas, Texas uh, this week and... As I was coming back, I didn't bring my computer, I just uh, brought my Bible and uh, some paper, and I was sitting in the airport in Atlanta, I mean in Dallas, uh, working on this sermon. So I was just taking notes, and I was, found myself just kind of feverishly writing down about how we need to see the multitudes around them and feel compassion and how Jesus did this. And literally as I was writing that, I realized I'm surrounded by an obnoxious amount of people and none of them I really like, to be honest with you. You know, it was that moment where, you know how now they, they charge you to check your bag, and so everyone carries their bag on, and there's a limited amount of overhead space. And so about an hour before the flight starts, everybody gets in line and hates each other and is, ma- is mad at everybody, and they're all standing there. And I kind of had one of those close seats, and I'm just kind of like, I'm going to get on whenever, and they're all kind of crowding into my personal space. And so I'm finding myself irritated by all these people around me as I'm writing a sermon to you. <laughs> like, this, this literally hit me. Like, I'm like condemning in my heart. I'm like, these people are the worst. And then as I'm, as I'm thinking that I'm writing this sermon about how, you know what Prince needs to do? They need to see the multitudes. (laughs) But honestly, I had this thought as I was sitting there, like, what does Jesus see when he sees those people? Like Jesus sitting in that seat, there's this massive room crowded with people. What does Jesus see when he sees them? Because at that moment, I was not seeing them the way Jesus was seeing them. Jesus would see them and feel broken over them because he would see what was really going on in their hearts. And he would realize that the vast majority of them are walking aimlessly through life without any sense of hope or purpose. And if they do not come to Christ, we'll die and go to hell. And doesn't it have to start there with us? Like I think about all of our college students who are here, then I think about all of our high school and middle school students that are here and how you're surrounded every day by just crowds of lost people. And I think it has to start before we're ever gonna be willing to share the gospel more than anything just out of duty by just seeing that people are really lost. And only God can work that in our hearts. Like we just have to pray, God, would you help me to be able to see people the way you are? I don't wanna be blind to this anymore. I don't wanna just be annoyed anymore. I don't wanna just ignore the people around me I, I, I want to feel what you feel when you see the multitudes and and it does have to to be the the masses of people and it does have to be our heartbreaking for the city and the nation and listen for the 4.5 billion unreached people do you know that 4.5 billion that haven't heard the name of jesus but listen, we're going to talk about that next week as we focus on what God is doing in the overseas mission of our church. But you realize if you give $1,000 to the mission offering but have never talked to your neighbor, that doesn't seem to do much good. You still need to give $1,000 to the mission offering. I'm just saying, like, thinking that we have, we have accomplished the mission because we gave a $1,000 to the mission offering when in reality, no, we, we are surrounded by I mean, just to get personal, think about it this way. Some of you may know this book if you've been around church for a while. In 1980, Oscar Thompson, who was a uh, professor at Southwestern Seminary, wrote a book called Concentric Circles of Concern. Some of you remember this book. It it was a strategy for reaching people. And here's, here's what he did. He said, there's seven circles of concern. It starts right in the middle with you. So you walk with God, you be a usable vessel. You try to be pure with the Lord so God can use you and the power of God is resting on you. And then it goes out from there to your family. That's your responsibility. And then it goes to your friends. And then it goes to your neighbors and coworkers and your acquaintances in the world. But what he's trying to get us to understand is, listen, yeah, we want to reach the world, but you got some messed up family members that need to know Jesus too. And they're all coming over for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And then you've got some neighbors that you've never engaged in conversation with or invited over for a meal. You've got coworkers that you pass every day and have never had a conversation with them. And what I love about this concentric circles, it's helping us to understand that your neighbor is your responsibility. Like, don't invite me over to tell your neighbor about Jesus. That's your neighbor, right? I don't need to tell your family members about Jesus. You tell your family members about Jesus. Just concentric circles of concern. And what I love is this. It just starts with being concerned about those people, with seeing them the way that they really are, allowing that to settle in, to think about the reality of their life and just let it break our heart. When I was a kid, my my father was a pastor and my father was just an evangelist at his core, like everything. He was just a strong evangelist. And I love that about him. I remember as a kid, he passed out stickers. It was a very large church and everyone got these stickers. And almost every year you would see these stickers everywhere. And I knew I had one in my Bible somewhere, but I couldn't find it in an old Bible. So I texted a friend of mine who grew up at that church. And he immediately sent back a picture of this sticker in his Bible. And here's what the sticker said. It says, Lord, help me to never get used to seeing men and women and boys and girls die and go to hell. Lord, help me to never get used to seeing men and women and boys and girls die and go to hell. That's a good prayer, isn't it? That we would be able to see people the way that God sees them, asking the Lord, Lord, give me your eyes. I want my heart to break over those that are around me. We must see the lost. We must also seek the lost. Write that down. We must seek the lost. Meaning there also must be some effort, some level of effort to engage in the mission of God. Every one of these stories in Luke 15 displays effort. So it says in verse 3, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one thing that is lost until he finds it? Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she Finds it. There's this unrelenting, aggressive, diligent search of that which is lost. Like it shows some effort. And what Jesus is saying to them is like, I don't, if you have a sheep that's gone or you lost a family heirloom, I don't have to talk to you about diligently going to search them because you're just going to do that. Like you're just going to naturally go out and aggressively go find that was lost. What Jesus is saying, I just, I just want that to be a part of your life when it comes to lost people. And that is Luke 15, that Jesus is diligently seeking what matters to him and we diligently seek what matters to us. In Matthew 4:19, Jesus calling his disciples, here's his invitation. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I think there's a lot we could say about that, but wouldn't you say at, at, at the very least, what he's saying is that if you come and follow me, I'm gonna lead you into a lifelong process of loving people? Right? Like, I'm going to lead you into a process in which we're going after people. So come with me, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to go get people. We're going we're to be involved in the lives of people. Like, that call to follow Jesus means that in our lives, there must be some effort, some work, some time applied to seeking after the lost. Now, I said I, said I wanted to be practical, and I really do. So let, let's think about some things here. I believe it begins just with praying. Like we just, God has to do something in our heart. God helped me to see, Help me to see people around me. There was a guy that came to my high school. I went to a Christian high school and uh, I was in 12th grade. His name was Roy Mansfield. He was a missionary in New York City. And he said, I want to give you a challenge. I want to challenge you if you're willing for 30 days to pray Colossians chapter four, that God would open a door for you to share the gospel. He said, I promise you, if you pray for 30 days for God to open a door to share the gospel, God would. And you know what? I took the challenge, I did it, and the worst thing happened. A door opened, and I needed to share the gospel. It was terrifying, right? Like, here it was. It was like, oh, my goodness, here's a massive open door. I got I to gotta share the gospel. Like, I didn't think this through. Like I, but God does that. Why? Because God wants us to be engaged in the lives of people, and if we will just seek and pray for God to do that, he will actually do it. Listen, just serving people and welcoming people into your home. On the back of the bulletin, there's a, a thing here for holiday hosts. You know what that is? There's hundreds of international students at the University of Georgia that have no place to go at Christmas and Thanksgiving. So everybody else leaves, they're stuck there. No, there's, there's no place for them to go. And this is simply a moment where you can volunteer to have one international student in your home for Thanksgiving or Christmas. That's it. But what an unbelievable display of of love and kindness. I just have someone over. You have too much food anyway, and you're going to eat too much. It would be better for you to have somebody else there. Spare you from more gluttony. Just having someone in your home. Uh, As you know, my my father passed away in, in January, and I remember about a month after my dad died, my mom called me and said, Josh, I just realized something. She said, I'm a widow. I never thought about that before. Like I, I've always known widows, like I'm a, I'm a widow and I've never thought about that. And uh, it's actually, it's good for me to remember too, because not only is she my mom, she's a widow and we do give care and special concern to, to widows. And so I call my mom every day and I'm out there every couple of weeks and she comes out to our house every couple of weeks. But let me tell you something amazing that happened. My mom has a young couple that live next door to her. They're totally lost. I've talked to them multiple times. I know them. So it's a husband and wife, two little kids. They're from California. They moved here because of the movie industry in Atlanta. And he works from home and he keeps budget records for movies that are going on. So he keeps the budget. He's home all the time. Let me tell you what they've done for my mom. About five months ago, they came to my mom's house. and They said, listen, here's what we want to do. Every single time we cook a meal, we're going to bring you a plate. Every time we cook a meal. What's great about this is they didn't make her come over every time because that's not like, you know, going to get dressed and go over. They just said, no, every time we cook a meal, we're just going to bring a plate to your house. So literally five nights a week, at least, they're just making an extra plate and they go deliver it to my mom. And then he, here's the amazing thing. There's a distance of about 50 yards from my mom's front door to their house. And there's woods, kind of woods there. And there's, there's bushes there. One Saturday, this man came out and he cleared a path from my mom's front door to their garage so if she needed anything she could walk over without anything being in between. And I don't know of any, any church member or any believer that has done more for my mom than they've done. And you know what they did? They just gave her an extra plate of dinner. They just took an afternoon and cleared a pathway. But I think the symbolism there of clearing a pathway, of how that act of kindness has cleared a pathway for a relationship. And listen, I, I I get Romans 10 and I know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and no one is going to get saved because of the good things that you've done and people must hear the gospel in order to be saved. I just think we've gotten to this place where we feel like if you have not fully presented the gospel, then nothing else matters. Like that's it. And I want to say the mission of God is bigger than that because Jesus just eats with a lot of sinners. And these acts of kindness and these things that we do in the name of Jesus and clearing a pathway and bringing a meal and having someone in our home, all of that stuff matters. And if you think the only thing worth anything is a full presentation of the gospel, you will miss all the other stuff that frankly has to be there for you to ever have an open door to share the gospel. And we've got to know how to share the gospel. But can we just engage in some acts of kindness, doing some good things in the name of Jesus to our neighbors and those around us? I would love it. Next week as your community group meets and you discuss the lesson, forget the lesson. Just talk about how you as a group can do some nice things for people can love on some people, can be kind to people, to think about the needs of those around you and say, God, we just want to engage in those needs. There's just some real practical ways to seek the lost and let them know that there is a God and a church that loves them. We must see the lost, we must seek the lost. And the last one is this, we must celebrate the lost. One of the things I love so much about Luke 15 is that there's three parties in Luke 15. All of them have good food and music and dancing. I love that. I love that when Jesus describes to give us a picture of the kingdom, it's a big party with music and dancing. Now, listen, as Baptists, it's not that you just think dancing is wrong. You didn't grow up with it, so you're bad at it. I think most Baptists don't like dancing because they know they're not good at it. And if we started having dancing, then it would expose that you're just terrible at dancing, right? So I'm just I'm trying to make any other point, although I will say this. It seems like someday in the kingdom, we, we're doing something. I mean you're doing at least something would something there's there's some party are dancing so you get your best move and get ready for heaven because th- this is a picture of the ki- you know my favorite is that one where you you uh, you put a cigarette out with your foot and do your back with a towel like the, I can teach you that like that's my one move but something it just the whole kingdom is a party and I love I love this idea that that the church should be a little reflection of heaven which means the church should be a place of incredible gladness psalm 67 let the nations be glad and sing for joy we should be manifesting the gladness of the lord so so you know me i I like happy church so i want the lights up i don't want to darken here I want the lights up. I want the music celebrative. I want our greeting time to go just a little bit longer than it normally does. Like I want this to be a happy place. I want us to welcome people and love people. But listen, the greatest joy the church experiences is not when we turn off the lights and have happy music. It's when we see what we saw from that baptistry every single week. That's what makes a happy church. And, and when one time it's someone that you have reached and you get to stand up there with them and be a part of the baptism because you cleared a path and you took a meal and at some point had the opportunity to share the gospel. Like that's the kind of celebration that the kingdom has. And that's the kind of celebration that God is calling us to. I told you that Luke 15 ends unresolved. one of the things I love, I love that the father goes out to the older brother who's pouting, okay? He goes out to the other brother and it says he entreats him to come in. So like my thought would be, forget the older brother, let him stay out. No, God goes out, he invites the religious in, but I love this. He invites him in, but he doesn't stop the party because he's pouting. Do you know how many churches have died? Because they started to get evangelistic and aggressively reaching people, and there's a group of people that are upset. And so the pastor said, Well, if you're upset, we don't want you to get upset, so we'll stop. And what the father gives us a picture of here is we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go after the lost aggressively. And this may not be exactly what you like, and we want to invite you to come in, but we're gonna be about this, and we're not gonna stop the party because of this. And the question for Issa is are we gonna are we gonna come in? Like are we gonna embrace the heart of God and be about what he's about? Because the chapter ends with this verse. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. That's the right and good thing. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. I'll finish with this. We read a minute ago, Matthew chapter 9, when we talked about Jesus seeing the multitudes and feeling compassion. Let me finish those verses. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus sees the multitudes. He feels it in his gut. And then look at his response. So then he turns to his disciples and says, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. There's tons of people, Jesus says, we just don't have enough laborers. And I think, why, why does the church not reach more people? I think, well, it's not, a, it's not a money problem. We got money. It's not a culture problem, meaning, well, I tell you, uh, the culture's not going the way of Jesus anymore, and people don't fear God, and it's just hard to talk to them. But no, that's not it. It's not a government problem. Well, you know, once they took prayer out of school, no, it's not the government problem. It's not a power problem because all power has been given to us through the Holy Spirit. No, we don't have a money problem or a culture problem or a government problem or a power problem. We got a people problem. <laughs> we just need some laborers. Like the harvest is plentiful, we just have a few laborers. So the prayer is, Lord, would you help us to labor more and give us more laborers. And here's what I'm just asking for you today. Just can we just pray? that God would open our eyes, that God would allow us to place some effort. And this is the best time of the year to do that. Just, just a little bit of labor for the kingdom. Because all the Lord says is if we would just pray for more laborers, it would be sufficient for the harvest. The biggest concern for our church is this. I just, I don't want us to play church. I want us to join God in his mission and make every single Sunday that we gather together, not just a celebration of Jesus Christ, but a celebration of his saving power as every week we're seeing the lost come home. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.